0: Tell the person next to you the best Christmas movie, the best Christmas movie in the entire world. Go ahead and tell them. <clears throat> now I want you to tell them why they are wrong. <laughs> um, my wife's family, uh, as my wife was growing up, she, uh, they grew up with It's a Wonderful Life every year. And so it's, uh, who, who said that's the best holiday movie, best Christmas movie, Wonderful Life. Okay. Uh, you're welcome to stay, but you're wrong. Um I was just kidding. I used to call it a wonderful nap. I grew up never watching it. I had never seen it until Sarah and I were married. And so like this black and white, and it starts with like planets talking to each other. I'm like, this theology is way wrong. Like this is, this doesn't hold up to any biblical standards whatsoever. Uh, but then Sarah started getting upset at me because the boys started catching on. Cause she'd be like, let's watch. It's a wonderful life. I'm like, guys, if you're sleepy, now's the time to take a nap. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, But now she does like the whole Hallmark binge watch thing. Any Hallmark binge watchers in here? Yeah, where it's like baking or Christmas presents or whatever, like she doesn't even watch the shows, right? She just has them on. And I think the reason she doesn't watch the shows is because of the fact they're all the same, um, and uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, who, who would have thought that the businesswoman from New York gets stuck in her hometown when she sees the rugged but attractive and also very poor man, and they would fall in love on Christmas Eve, right, with the quaint little village, like the whole, like, who would have thought that would have happened in this, uh... so if you haven't seen Hallmark, I just explained every single moment to you, um, but uh, anyway, so like I said, my wife does that when she's wrapping presents and that, that sort of thing. Uh, a movie that we don't watch regularly but is a, uh, a popular movie around this time is, is uh, How The Grinch Stole Christmas, or The Grinch You Stole Christmas, right? Uh, I feel like that's a B-level Christmas movie at best. It's not in the same playing field as like Elf or A Christmas Story, which is what I was raised on. Um, I know you guys are like judging me personally. That's fine. Those are the two best Christmas movies, hands down. I don't care what Clarence says. Um, so... It's it's a wonderful life reference for those of you in here. Um, So we don't do the Grinch uh, uh, too often or anything like that, but the message at the end of The Grinch Who Stole Christmas is really, really good. Like, I mean... Spoiler alert, if you don't know how the Grinch ends, sorry, it was written like in the 40s. Um, but, uh, but at the end, like, like the whole movie is, the whole story rather, is about this guy who's angry at Christmas time. His heart's too small and all this stuff. And so he decides that that all these people, the, the Who's of Whoville, uh, are celebrating Christmas too much. He's going to steal all of Christmas, right? And you guys know the story. And so he takes the trees and the ornaments and the presents and all of the decorations and does all of those things thinking that, um, th- that this is going to destroy Christmas. But then Mary Lou Who, right, just comes out in her braids and they hold hands and they sing a song and they're swaying back and forth in the town square and all that stuff. And this is kind of how, <clears throat> how it ends. This is what it says. It says, and the Grinch With his Grinch feet, ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling, how could it be so? It came without ribbons, it came without tags, it came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. What if Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store? What if Christmas perhaps means a little bit more, right? Dr. Seuss. We can all go watch that movie later on today. But clearly the people of Whoville, they did not miss Christmas. They didn't miss it. There are people all over the world who will indeed miss Christmas because they do not recognize Christmas for what it is. They recognize Christmas for what the Grinch saw it as. Uh, they recognize Christmas for the decorations. They recognize Christmas for the presents. They recognize Christmas for all of those different things. And at the end, that's not what Christmas is really about, right? We, I mean, that's as the saying goes. Jesus is the reason for the season. There are people in here who are going to miss Christmas. And you might think to yourself, well, it would be really hard to miss it in America because every place you turn, there's advertising going on about all the stuff that you should buy for all of the people that you love. And if you don't buy all that stuff, you obviously don't, don't love them. Um, but, like I said last week, it's not just the advertising either. Right? We got the lights and the parties and the Christmas trees and the snows and all those different things. So, here in America, very, very few people will miss the Christmas celebration, but many people will indeed miss Christmas. Even many Christians will miss the real reason for Christmas time. And so for those of us who know Jesus, Christmas comes kind of a time for us to be able to focus on the reality of the incarnation, that God became man. And we talked about that last night, like this incredible, or last week, this incredible divine act that brought God into human history. This was him stretching himself in the skin in order for us to be able to be with him forever. That was kind of the landing point from last week. And we know all this, we've heard it all before, church or podcasts or YouTubes of preachers who are better than me and all that stuff. But even still, if we aren't careful because of everything that's happening around us, we can still miss Christmas time, right? Even with the cool stuff that we did last week, I am fearful that people miss the intention of why it is that we do what we do and so today we're going to continue to look back at at some people who missed Christmas at Christmas time. I want to gain an understanding of how someone can can miss it, right? This idea of the savior of the world, light and glory is coming into the world to be able to be the savior of the world and people just missed it. And so last week we largely talked about the innkeeper and you guys know the story, Mary and Joseph, Mary's on the donkey, they're cruising around trying to find a place to be able to stay And in the innkeeper's like, "Nope, can't sit here, and yeah, it's Forrest Gump, anyway, um, and he allows them to go and, and, you know, take up residence somewhere on his property, and the Savior of the world is born on his property, but he missed Christmas, and the real reason that he missed Christmas is what we talked about last week, is he missed Christmas simply because of the fact that he was preoccupied, he was too busy. I think that's a real fear for all of us, but today we're going to take a little bit of a deeper dive in Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to look at somebody who also missed Christmas but missed it for a complete and total different reason. But before we get to that, I want all of us to take a little bit of inventory in our own lives regarding where it is our hearts are at this Christmas time. Where do our hearts reside? Like the question from last week continues to remain, are you missing out on Christmas? Are you sacrificing Christmas on the altar of Christmas? Are you staying at the, at the office too late to try and pay for Christmas presents that your kids don't need? Are you, are you baking more stuff for people you don't like to give them calories they don't need in order to make you feel good about yourself? Are, we, are you simply missing it, whether you be preoccupation or something else? The next person, like I said, Matthew chapter 2. This is a dude, my favorite character in the Christmas story besides Jesus. I don't know if this is even allowed. It's actually the bad guy in the entire story. Dude by the name of Herod. And the reason Herod is really fascinating is because we have a ton of backstory regarding King Herod. Because of the fact that he's not just recorded in the Bible, there's also a lot of historical narrative regarding who he is. And so because of that, it's different than like the Apostle Peter the Apostle Paul. Herod had famous parents. Okay, he has a lineage that people were tracking, historians were tracking and different things like that. But the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, John, all of those guys, they came from nowhere. They came from no one, and so no one was recording their lineage, no one was recording their their history. But Herod, we get something a little bit different. But believe me, Herod missed Christmas, and it starts here in verse 1. We're going to check through, trek through chapter 12, or verse 12, not chapter 12. We'll be here till 3. Okay, (coughs) excuse me. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who had been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people of Israel." On coming to the house they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him and they opened their treasures 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 and presented him with gifts of gold frankincense and myrrh and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod they returned to their country by another route All right we're going to take a deeper look a little bit at verses 7 and 8 okay verses 7 and 8 are kind of the kicking off point to what we need to know regarding Herod it says then Herod called the magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared he sent them to bethlehem and said go and search carefully for the child as soon as you find him report to me so that i may go and worship him too all right herod at this point is pretending to want to worship jesus but Herod, at this point, is also tremendously afraid because someone had been born who was called the king of the Jews. Someone had been born who was called the king of the people that Herod was currently ruling over. And it says there, Herod, so he's the king, and he knew that a king at that point has been born, and he was afraid. It actually says he was disturbed. Was, he was disturbed. He uses that word. It kind of means agitated. It means stirred up, shaken up. The idea of like total panic in his life is what's going on. So he panicked and he had no room, no time for Jesus. Why? Fear. Herod was terrified, he was afraid of him. Herod was afraid of another king. Let me tell you why. Herod was an Edomite. None of you should know what an Edomite is, okay? Edomites were people, unless you're an Old Testament scholar, none of you are Old Testament scholars, or else you would have talked to me about it before. Okay, So Edomites are from the line of Esau. Many of you maybe remember the, line, the, the story of Jacob and Esau, right? So the Israelites come from Jacob, the Edomites come from Esau. And so Edomites... And, and Israelites, man, buddies, brothers, essentially, okay, neither one of them had any beef with each other, they just kind of coexisted, right, they were just kind of like around each other, in the same way like Hanford and Kingsburg are near each other, we don't got any beef with Kingsburg, we have beef with Lamor. we don't have beef with Kingsburg though, right, so, so because of that, uh, it is strange for Herod to be the ruler over the Jews, you think to yourself, "Well, why is that weird? Why is that? Why is that strange?" It would kind of be like if, if uh, when when Queen Elizabeth died, if they put a person who was French on the throne. Okay, not necessarily like, huh? Like that? What? That doesn't make any sense because there's a ton of British people who should be sitting on that throne. All right, I'm sure the British wouldn't be happy about it, but it is what it is. We're just going to deal with it. Okay, so all that to be said, Herod was an Edomite, not a Jew. And the Edomites considered brothers to the Jews, but shouldn't have been rulers over them. So what was Herod doing ruling that land? Okay, let me give you some context on who Herod is. This dude's crazy. He's a bad dude, which is one of the reasons I find him so fascinating. So maybe, maybe he's not my favorite. Maybe he's the most fascinating. Maybe that's a better way for me to put that. Um, so Herod comes from a family called the Edomine family. They're the Edomites, like he said. And he was falling behind his father, a dude by the name of Antipater. And Antipater was also a bad dude. He had done some favors to Rome. And at this point, Rome had, was was occupying everything, occupying all of, all of Palestine. And so Antipater had done a bunch of favors for Rome. And then beyond that, after Antipater, Herod was like, hey, I will also do favors to Rome because of the fact that, that I see what my dad is doing and he is getting favor from the ruling class or gaining favor from the ruling class. So because of that, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to do the same thing. So Herod did everything he could to get into the favor of Rome. He played the game to the hilt, right? Like you've heard of career politicians before, of people like doing favors in order to make sure that like they get ahead. This guy was a pro, okay? He would have thrived in American politics. He had political goals, political ends, and and the power play was going on all the time. And Rome really, really trusted Herod. And Rome really, really liked Herod. So finally, the Roman Senate appointed him as the king of Judea. So again, kind of weird, but really it wasn't like the Jews felt like they were under occupation by anybody, if that, if that makes sense. So then Herod hears that somebody is being called the king of the Jews. He panics. He already knows that he's in a seat that he's not supposed to be in that he was given this, this political favor by other people because of the fact that he had done so many things for the Roman, uh, Roman government. So he panics because he's a political man-man, because he wanted glory, he wanted that grandeur, he wanted, he wanted a, a kingly place, and he's immediately threatened, even though this was a baby and he is an old man. Okay, the rumor of another, another king panicked him. So to give you a little, bit, a little bit more clarity, a little bit more information regarding Herod and who he was as a person... Because again, terrible, terrible person. So he, he starts out as a young governor in Galilee, right? And like I said, he's under his father. And his father had destroyed all of this like guerrilla, guerrilla warfare that was going on. Like He wiped out all of these people who were trying to fight against him. There were people by the name of the Hasmoneans. The Hasmoneans, by the way, sons of the, Ma- uh, the Maccabeans. So if you know much about Jewish history, the Maccabees are a massive part of Jewish history history. So he wipes out this entire people group because he was nervous that these people were going to rise up again and take over Roman occupation of that area. And so he's like, nope, I'm going to shut it down. So Herod shuts the entire thing down. Romans are really, really happy about that. But beyond that, he's also really, really good at collecting taxes. Shocker, politician, right? So he he gets really, really good at not just collecting taxes, but also charging them more money for their taxes so he can skim off the top and put it in his own pocket. So what Herod has done is effectively, he's gained the favor of Rome and he's gotten rich and really, really wealthy from his position, okay? So all that to be said, he murdered all of these people, he murdered the sons of the Maccabeans, he led this great revolution against his Greek power, he wanted to make sure they didn't do it again, so he slaughters all these people. It's going to his personal life, that's just professional life. His personal life, uh, he had 10 wives and 12 children, that's a lot, and I have five, like I get it, but 10 wives and ch- five children, to be clear. I just want to make sure no one misquotes me. <laughs> 10 wives and 12 children. Okay, his most notable wife, she's got a brother by the name of Aristobulus. Aristobulus is the high priest at the time. That means he's in charge of like all of the religious leaders and that, and that sort of thing. He was terrified of Aristobulus. Why? Because he posed a threat to his political power. And so he decided, like any good king would do to any good religious leader, that he was going to kill him. And he tells him, hey, it's really hot today. Let's go swimming. So Aristobulus, he jumps into a lake or a river or whatever it was. And then Herod probably did like that one, two, three. And like he jumped and Herod did it. And then Herod told all of his buddies, go jump in and drown Aristobulus. So he kills Aristobulus, but that's not the end of it. He tells everybody that uh, this is a freak accident, so they pull Aristobulus out, they get him prepared for the funeral, and he sits there weeping at the funeral of his brother-in-law that he had just killed. Why? For political favor. But beyond that, his his, his wife and his mother-in-law started sniffing around a little bit. He's like, this isn't okay. My wife's not allowed to ask me questions about people I may or may not have killed. And so because of that, he then kills his wife, and then after that, kills his mother-in-law, as well, like I said, crazy, bad, bad dude. But the cherry on, the, on top of this entire thing, because he was suspicious of everybody. His entire life is plotting and murder and execution. He's just like this panicked, jealous, crazy person. But he's about to die, right? He's about to, he's about to pass away. And so he decides he's gonna go down to Jericho. And, and in order, as he's passing his, his final hours, he commanded everyone who was under him to round up all of the distinguished citizens of Jerusalem. Anybody who had any sort of influence, any sort of control, any sort of money or anything like that, he was like, hey boys, go round up all of those people. So all the boys, round up all the people, throw them all in jail. And so he commanded them, when I die, I want you guys to go and kill all of these people who are in jail. Why? Because of the fact that he wanted to make sure all of Jerusalem was weeping when he died. He did not care why. He just wanted to make sure everybody was sad when he died, even if it was other people that had been slaughtered. Crazy, crazy, crazy dude. Okay, so he did, he did all of those things, but, but beyond that, also paranoid. So when he heard that this child was born, Jesus, this king of the Jews, in verse 16 of chapter 2, he says the wise men actually, it says the wise men didn't come back and tell him. So he saw that he was kind of mocked by the wise men. He's angry from the wise men, and he sent forth, and he killed all of the children in Bethlehem and all of its borders from two years old and under. Two years old means anything from the first month you enter that second year to the fullness of that second year. So really, anybody up to three. So they were slaughtered, all of these kids, in order to try and wipe out one child. One child. And as you know, and if you don't know, go back and read Matthew chapter two. God had already warned Mary and Joseph what was going on with Herod, so they took Jesus and they fled to Egypt. They took off before any of this could happen. Okay. So Herod, crazy. Why did Herod miss Christmas? Fear. Herod missed Christmas simply because of fear. So the question becomes, do we really need to fear missing Christmas because of the fact that any of us are afraid? Well, I think the answer to that is, is kind of yes and no. I think it depends on how you look at this idea of fear. There's always Herods in any society. Right, crazy people who are gonna do whatever it is that they wanna do in order to gain control or to get their way or anything like that. And they always end up as like influencers and politicians and governors and all this crazy stuff. I don't know why that is. Okay, there's Herod's in any society, but I think there's a lesson for all of us just to see this isn't Herod only. There's also a ton of people who miss Christmas because of the same basic kind of fear that Herod had. The same basic fear. Herod's fear simply stated, was that somebody else was going to take his throne. Somebody else was going to control his kingdom. That was Herod's fear. I mean, everything that he did, from the killing of Aristobulus, the killing of his two sons that he murdered, by the way, that I failed to mention because he thought his two sons were plotting to kill him so they could sit on the throne. All of the things, everything that he did, was to make sure that he could, he could stay in control of his tiny little kingdom. That was his fear. And I actually affirm that there's actually a, a lot of people like that. Right? Herod wasn't about to let this little child interfere with his career. Herod wasn't about to let this little child interfere with his position, with his power, with his ambition, with his plans, with his lifestyle, with his money, with all of those different things. He was not about to let somebody else be king in his life. He was the king. So as we phrase it like that, and we talk about fear that way, let's ask the question again, are there any Herods in the world? I think the simple answer to that is yes, right? Because there's people who want Jesus as a resource when they want to get in trouble, when they don't want to get into trouble but they're not willing to make him Lord of their life. There are people who want Jesus as a sort of nice spiritual friend, but they are not willing to let him sit on the throne of their life. There are people who maybe even want Jesus as somebody to help keep them out of hell, but they're not interested in keeping him as Lord of their lives. And so that's why the Bible says that when you confess Jesus as Lord, you're saved. That's the basis of it, that he is taking control of your life at that point. He is the one sitting on the throne of your heart. And there are people who want to add Jesus, and this is a large group of people who want to add Jesus to their own lifestyle, want to add Jesus to their own career, their own position, and their own power and prestige, and whatever else they are hanging on to. They want to add Jesus to that lifestyle, but they're not willing to allow him to be the Lord of their lives. They're fearfully jealous of losing their own self-identity. They're fearfully jealous of giving up their own plans. They don't want it to happen. We oftentimes don't want it to happen. We're fearful that our own priorities, our own values, our own morals, and all these things, they don't want to come to Christ because it will cramp their style. Because it will lay claim on their life. That means that they have to alter the way they live, they have to alter the way they think and talk and act, and they want to run the show. They want to be the herod of their own little kingdom. So let me ask you for a second, what's the little kingdom that you are being the herod of currently? in your own personal life. And I'm terrible at this. Okay, I wanna, I wanna white knuckle my own little kingdom all the time, I wanna have control. I wanna make sure that everything I plan, everything that I do goes perfect. Because if I do it, it'll be, it'll be perfect. It manifested itself in our event last weekend. Okay, so we've been planning that, uh, that Christmas tree lighting event for months. Right? We're like, oh, it's gonna be great. We even planted grass out there. You guys saw the grass, people were asking questions, like why is there grass out there? Like, I don't know, it's supposed to be a dead dirt field. But we had a couple guys from our church, uh, Ryan Newton, Gary Gilcrease, were like, we'll take care of it. We'll plant a lawn out there. So they planted a lawn. They flooded it. Grass came up. We had a couple months ahead of time. Ryan mowed it. It looked great, I mean, at least for grass that we flooded a field for. And so beyond that, the entire event was supposed to take place out there. It was supposed to be fire pits out there. Right We're supposed to have like, all of our, our, our craft stuff was going to be out there. Everybody was going to be hanging out out there. The stage was actually going to be a flatbed trailer that was out there, and so people could see the band, and you know people could see Pastor Gary as he came, and, and he prayed for, for the whole event and do like the whole thing out there. It was supposed to be like this big, epic thing, or like, "Yeah, it's going to take place on the grass." And then God was like, "Hey, watch me work. Here's rain for you for a day and a half before that entire event. I was terrified. I was like I don't know what I'm supposed to do at this point like how do we pivot an entire event is revolving around people being out in that field that is now wet grass and some mud what is it that we are supposed to do at this point point? and so I'm having anxiety about it as I'm hearing the rain like hit the roof and all this stuff and Sarah was just like hey when's the last time that you prayed over this event and I was like shut up <laughs> I was just kidding I would never say that to my wife. Um, <laughs> she, Jesus, juked me hard. Um, so anyway, but the event that I was white-knuckling, thinking this event is going to be great. There's going to be hundreds of people who show up to this event. We're going to do the hay rides. We're going to do the s'mores. We're going to do the hot chocolates. We're going to do the whole thing that's going to be out there. It's going to be big. It's going to be grandiose with one sentence, with one question from my wife. Who is there to edify me, who's there to encourage me, who's there to love me and point me back to Jesus all the time with one sentence. She pried the entire thing from my hand. She said, look, this isn't your event in the first place. God's gonna do whatever it is that God wants to do. And then God made it better than I could ever imagine. We never even thought about putting the whole thing out here. The whole thing, legitimately, as you walked up, you're like, it's Christmas here. It feels like Christmas time out here. And we're like, why would we ever move it again? Why would we ever do it out in the fields? People walk around in muddy boots. Forget that. Let's stay out on the patio where it's warm and fun and festive and all this stuff. At the same time, I want to be king of my own kingdom. I want to white knuckle my way. And so the world is full of Herods who cry out. We're not going to let this person reign over us. As true today as it's ever been. We have our own little kingdoms, right? We have our own little ways that we want to run our own life. We have our own ways we want to run our careers, their own fame, their own sex life, their own devices, their own life of ego, fulfillment. Everyone just keeps telling them, like, do it. Grab, grab your own life. Do your thing. Master your own fate. Chart your own destiny. Do all of those things. Like, be your own man. Be your own woman. If you hustle hard enough, you'll finally be worth something, And that's the message that society continues to give us, is you are the master of your domain. You are the king of your own kingdom, and we have a world of kings who are not about to bow the knee to Jesus, and so they miss Christmas, just like Herod did. Theirs is the same reason, though. Ours, oftentimes, is the same reason. fear of giving up our own kingdoms, fear of giving up our own way. Then the question becomes, well, what about you today? What about you this morning? Have you said no to Jesus Christ in your life because you are afraid of the claim that he will lay on you? I want you to think about that, because oftentimes we enter into a relationship with Jesus, we make a profession of faith, and we don't realize that we are giving up complete control of our lives, That whatever Jesus says goes. Whatever Jesus says, whatever the Holy Spirit impresses on our parts, is is how it is that we are supposed to act, is how it is that we are supposed to move. That it doesn't matter that you want your own way, it doesn't matter what it is that you want, it doesn't matter the type of car that you want to drive, it doesn't matter the city that you want to go live in, it doesn't matter any of those things. What matters is what Jesus tells you that you're supposed to be doing. And so with that, you are making him Lord of your life. So the question is Have you said no to Jesus in your life because you're afraid of the claim that He's going to lay on you? Maybe for the first time or ever. Even even if you have said yes to Jesus before and you're refusing to allow Him into the throne that He died for, is it because you are afraid of the claim that He has on your life? The master of your fate. You're afraid. That, that you're going to miss out on being the king of your thin little kingdom. And that's, that's tragic. But the reality is, I think we do it all the time. All of us do. We refuse to get off the throne of our lives in order to allow Jesus to come and take what he died for. If you look at 1 Peter uh, 3.15, it's not going to be on the screen, but the Apostle Peter, he wrote to a group of people, a group of Christians who were starting to get persecuted at the time. We went through First Peter a, a little while ago. But he's writing to a group of Jewish Christians specifically. And they're, like I said, they're suffering persecution for their faith. And Peter wanted them to know that like, if they were in the right frame of heart, their persecution for Christ would lead to an opportunity to testify of Christ. Like if you, if you live correctly, if you work correctly, Correctly, if you represent Jesus correctly, you are going to have an opportunity to testify of Jesus as Lord of your right life. And so, this is what he wrote in First Peter three fifteen. He wrote, "But sanctify the Lord in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you, with meekness and fear." That first part specifically, but sanctify the Lord in your hearts. Sanctify the Lord in your hearts. The word translated sanctify simply means to set something apart as holy and sacred from everything else. The process of sanctification we talk about oftentimes here is that process of becoming more and more holy as you wake up and you choose to follow Jesus every day and you allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life. That's sanctification. But, but this word is used a little, bit, a little bit different here and we need to be careful how we understand this. This isn't suggesting that in, in any way we change Jesus Himself, as it says, sanctify the Lord, make the Lord more holy. Is kind of how we would uh, we would read that. So it's not saying you're gonna, <coughs> excuse me, you're gonna change Jesus Himself. He is already unspeakably holy. He is already unspeakably set apart from everything else. Our sanctifying Him, as the verse kind of talks about, doesn't make Him holier than He already is. Rather, it actually means that we change our way of relating to him personally and that we set him apart from all the rest of things in our own hearts. So as we sanctify Jesus in our hearts, we sanctify the Lord in our hearts, that means everything else gets set aside and our hearts are set on him. So to sanctify Christ as Lord means we recognize him for who he already is and enthrone him in our innermost being as Lord. We simply say, Jesus, my heart is your throne. I acknowledge you as Lord and set you apart as such. Sit upon the throne of my heart. Exercise complete lordship over me. And Herod refused to do that. Exercise lordship over my words, over my thoughts, over my actions, over my money, over my entire life. Exercise lordship. Be in me that you already truly are over this entire universe. Take take your rightful place within my innermost being, as your absolute, as my absolute Lord and Master. And like I said, there's lots of professing Christians. Probably many of you here this morning who prayed long ago to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. <clears throat> You're saved by Jesus, and have known Him for many years, and He is part maybe, though, of your life. You have simply made him a part of your life. They even acknowledge acknowledge Jesus as Lord, but they haven't actually made him Lord in their hearts. They haven't yet removed themselves from the throne of the innermost depths of their innermost being and allowed him to take his rightful place there instead. And here's the deal. He's never going to force you into it. Right? He stands at the door and he knocks. He's never going to take that place on, on that throne against our will. He's only going to sit in a place of providence in our own hearts if we invite him to do so. He's not going to force himself on you. But until we've done so, <clears throat> and unless we learn to keep doing as we... Excuse me. But until we have done so, and unless we learn to keep on doing so as an ongoing pattern of our lives we will not exhibit the kind of peace and joy and hope in times of suffering that makes people ask ask for an explanation like peter is talking about in first peter three fifteen. he's like hey look i know crazy things are happening you know terrible things are happening even in the christmas season like i know busyness is happening how come you stop every night oh your family is reading devotionals at night what what devotional are you reading what are you reading about oh we're focusing on jesus to make sure our kids know that christmas isn't just about getting cooler presents to make sure our kids know and we remember that Christmas isn't just about gathering with family. To make sure our kids know that it's not just about things. To make sure that we remember it's not just about things. The hope that these people would ask about, you see, it's a byproduct of Jesus being lordship over, or being the Lord over our lives. That's how it begins one of my favorite quotes is from a pastor i have no clue who he was but i walked into his church uh, when i was in college one time one time never went back and he was decent i should have come back But he said if people aren't asking check how you're living that was the bottom line of all of it if people aren't asking check how you're living and the only reason people are going to ask why your life is different is if you've made lord over your entire heart That jesus has truly been set apart the world is full of people with influence based on the societal standard of influence, right? Maybe they're politicians like Herod. Maybe they're incredible athletes like Pastor Jeff. That's a joke. Or they're YouTube stars or social media influencers or, or whatever it may be. Like the, the world has plenty of people that who for the most part have put themselves on the throne of their own lives and called it good. And according to society have made it. But the world needs to hear that God doesn't need more Christians to be social media influencers. Like the world needs more Christians to act like Christians. The world needs more people to act like their God has made a difference in their life, because He is indeed sitting on the throne of their hearts and they're no longer competing with Him for control. Whatever you say, go, God, whatever you say goes, God. So I'll just land with this, see so you guys so I can stop talking. <laughs> Don't miss this Christmas because you're more concerned with retaining control of your tiny, little, insignificant kingdom. Make sure that you are with Jesus and allowing him to preside over the entirety of your life. Amen? Let's pray, church. God, thanks for getting me through that. But God, even, uh, even more importantly than my voice this morning, Father, I pray that people would give up the lordship of their life, the lordship of their heart, so you can reign supreme, so more people would come to know you. So, Father, there's a a group of people in this room who have said yes to you. Maybe it was 50 years ago, maybe it was five days ago, I don't know. But who have already professed their faith in you. Who really haven't made you lord of their life yet who are really doing their best to retain control, to white knuckle their life, their decisions, all of those different things. God, I pray that your spirit would just make them known to themselves today, even if they don't know it. And Father, to that group of people, I would just say with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if you wanna make God the actual Lord of your life, Let's commit to that together today by simply praying and saying, Father, I am sorry that even when I said yes to you for the first time, or the second time, or the third time, that I didn't allow you to sit on the throne of my life because I was afraid, afraid of what might happen. So God, take control of my life. I don't want to move. I don't want to act. I don't want to breathe apart from your will. I recognize that's what it looks like to follow you, Father. Then, Lord, I think there's another group of people in here, maybe who have not yet said yes to you who that Lord of their life, that throne is, man, we're currently taking up residence on it. We've never made that profession of faith. So if that's you this morning and you wanna make a profession of faith, you can simply pray along with me. Just in the quietness of your heart, no one needs to hear you. Simply say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. But B, I believe you sent your son to die on a cross for all of my sins so I could be with you forever and see I choose to follow you every single day of my life and allow you to sit on the throne of my heart. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.